Hello and welcome to another episode of Stardust MQ, I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is, once again, Professor Richard McDermott. This is part two of my two-part interview with, uh, with Richard. Richard McDermott is a galactic astronomer and lead scientist on the Mavis Telescope Project. In part one, I talked to him about the Mavis Project and what it means for the future of ground-based optical observations. And in this episode, I talked to him about his extensive research into galaxies, their history, and their assemblage. Why did you choose astronomy as a, as a field to get into? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think I, I was lucky. I grew up in a, in a small village that didn't have much light pollution. And, um, and I grew up with dogs. So they, you know, you had to go out walking with them on an evening. And so I think kind of naturally I started, you know, looking up and, and thinking about what was going on up there and paying attention to the night sky at some level. Um, but I wasn't like an avid amateur astronomer. Um, I enjoyed maths and physics at school. Um, and I think I, I decided to take the subjects further forward. Um, later in high school, I had some great teachers and, and they, um, they gave me kind of extracurricular um, public science books. And the one that really sort of got me hooked was um, Brief History of Time. Um, and by Stephen Hawking. And that, that kind of just like opened my eyes about all oh, this amazing physics that wasn't just a, a fairy tale, but it was actually like knowledge that people knew and things that, that people were looking into. And so that got me excited about physics and, and thinking about taking it further. And then I guess astronomy was a way to combine these two things together um, and in an exciting way. So I was lucky to be able to do an astronomy degree and towards the end of that, I got to do some research and that's when I really got, you know, into it. Um, I liked observing, I liked working with big telescopes and, uh, you know, the idea of being able to do that as a career sort of took root at the end of my undergraduate. And then, uh, you know, that's when I went on to do a PhD and the rest is, is history. Hmm. And so you have focused a lot on galaxies. I sort of had a troll through your page on, on, on the Macquarie website. And so why, why are you drawn so much to galaxies? Um, I think I originally got into to, you know, studying extragalactic astronomy because you got to use the biggest telescopes. I think that was probably the main reason that, that caught my attention. Um, it seemed like you know, you're, you're really at the cutting edge of the technology. Um, and I found that intrinsically appealing. Um, I, I like the, the idea of, of, of being able to use, you know, the, the world's kind of uh, top facilities to do the research. And that involves typically looking at, you know, things that are at the faintest edge of what we can see in, in some shape or form. And so I think I was driven by that, you know, general curiosity to use the, the, the latest technology. Um, and since then, I, I've been lucky that, well, I, I got involved with some really um, kind of groundbreaking projects at an early stage. So I got to use new kinds of instruments um, and, and we started seeing galaxies in kind of a new way, kind of a detailed way, actually. We hadn't really seen them like that before. And, um, and I think I'm kind of a detail-oriented person as well. So I think this was a good, a good marriage of, of the two. I get to use the big telescopes, but I also get to do kind of relatively detailed work in that field. Um, and I think that's what's kept me 
kept me interested. There's always more details to explore. Um, and every time you, you get an answer, you get two more questions in its place. What's been your favorite galaxy to study? I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of a Juno question after that, that, that waxing poetically, but I, I, I just, I think it'd be a quite an interesting question. Yeah, that is an interesting question. I'm not sure if I've thought about it in terms of favorites. I've been working on one recently uh, with an, a number of colleagues and, and my PhD student. Um, so it's relatively nearby and we have this pretty cool data set for it. So this was data taken at the very, very initial runs of, of a new instrument um, at the, in a telescope in Chile. And uh, it's a relatively nearby object. So you get a lot of detail uh, for, for this object. It doesn't have a very romantic name. It's called NGC 3115. Um, but I, I, there's, it's a very rich data set. So, you know, at, at first hand, it's just a normal kind of boring galaxy. The stars are orbiting around the center, like normal and nothing too spectacular, but then you have this data set that kind of opens up a rich, um, a, a rich plethora of structure that, that exists within this apparently very simple object. And I like that idea, kind of like what I was saying, you know, things seem simple at first, and then you look in a little bit more detail and it gets super complicated. And for me, that's one of those kinds of objects. And the other thing I like about the object is that there's lots of, it was probably the first one where I started to see a lot of parallels between other galaxies and our own galaxy. We have a very different perspective on the Milky Way because we're in it, you know, so half the time you, you can't see the wood for the trees. Um, and and you, you get information in a kind of a different way. You see individual stars and so on. So making those connections between our own galaxy and other systems is, um, you know, it's kind of an interesting area. And, and that was one of the objects where we really started to connect some, some similarities, even though on the surface, they look very different. Uh, underneath, they, they, they have some quite deep rooted connections. So that's probably my favorite object at the moment. From your, from your research and your outputs and your current projects that I've seen, you've sort of started to look into galactic history and stuff like that. And you have a project called Cosmic Fossils. Uh, what's that all about? So the idea, <laughs> the idea there was to, um, to try to unpick the history of an object based on how it looks today. Um, so there's, I guess there's a couple of ways to look at how the universe sort of unfolds over time. Um, we can use the convenient fact that the speed of light is finite. And so it takes light time to get places. And the distances in the universe and distances we can see are, are out to are so large that we're actually looking back in time. And so the further back you, the, the further away you look, the further back in time you're looking. Um, and so you can sort of do, you know, your, your telescope becomes a, a time machine then to look back into the history of the universe. But Unfortunately, as things get further away, they also get fainter, they get smaller in apparent size on the sky. The whole, the whole business becomes a bit more complicated um, because you don't get as much detail. Whereas for nearby things, you get a lot of detail, but you've got kind of the fossil record is how we refer to it. You, you see it as it is today. Um, and so you have to, you know, kind of be a bit of a detective um, and try to piece together the history from the evidence that you see um, at the current time. So that idea of cosmic fossils was, was kind of building on that, um, building on that idea. 
that we can look at nearby galaxies and, and try to figure out their past. And the way that we do that is we use tracers of the object's history. And so stars exist, you know, many stars exist for long periods of time. You know, our sun's around for about 10 billion years. It's kind of halfway through its life. And so those stars have hung around. The universe has actually evolved over the lifetime of most of the stars that we see. So that means that they somehow carry a memory of, of when they formed and what the universe was like when they formed. And that's encapsulated in their chemistry, um, but it's also encapsulated in, in their orbits, how they're moving. Um, and so, you know, one of the overarching themes, I guess, of my research in the past five years or so has been to bring these two aspects together. So the the chemical fingerprint in the in the stars, and the um, the dynamical history, the, the 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 assembly history that's encapsulated in orbits. We know that galaxies merge, they collide over time. That can complicate the picture. You know, galaxies are evolving in in various different ways. They're not static at all. That dynamical part, the orbits of the stars, really has a lot of information about that assembly history that can be hard to get otherwise. And yeah, that project was was kind of trying to bring these two things together. Figuring out the, the assemblage of galaxies, is that going to help us understand Milky Way more? Is that going to allow us to study uh, galaxies more efficiently? Or is, how would this be applied? Yeah. So to answer the first part about understanding the Milky Way better, I, I think it does. You know, for a long time, we've looked at the Milky Way. And because we have such, you know, comparatively exquisite detail, um, on, on, the, on the properties of the Milky Way, <laughs> you can come up with very, you know, you need rather complicated scenarios to explain how it looks exactly like it does. And it can start to become a bit contrived. And so such a, it becomes such a special scenario that it's not telling you anything general about how galaxies form. So, you know, with, with this kind of analysis of, of, of understanding the structure and seeing that as evidence of formation pathways, Connecting that to what we see in the Milky Way allows you to put the Milky Way in context, essentially. Um, you know, if, if you understand the orbits and the chemistry of stars and other galaxies, you can compare those characteristics with that information in the Milky Way, and you start to see the, the connections between, between the two different things. Um, and in that way, you know, you see, that you see the Milky Way more in context, and then that very special scenario that you've come up with for the Milky Way you see it as some tweaking around the, the general picture of how galaxies form. But you don't know that if you can't make these kind of comparisons. Um, and that's what this sort of um, archeological analysis lets you do. Now, how it helps us understand the overall picture. Um, well, we're lucky that we have, you know, pretty powerful computational methods now. We have numerical simulations. So you basically create a universe in a computer. Um, and, and they're, they're relatively sophisticated um, and they can make predictions of certain observed properties. But the, the things that they can predict are, are and, and do well tend to be quite generic. You know, the overall mass, the overall color. Um, these are kind of um, general properties of galaxies that can, you can arrive at the same conclusion from a variety of different paths. If you start to bring in a more detailed view of how and when stars have formed and how and when structures develop, um, that opens up a much more constraining set of observations that you then have to reproduce with your, with your models. And now you can distinguish different 
you know, uh, star formation recipes or different rates of formation in different ways that otherwise, you know, you can, you can make a galaxy have those general properties in lots of different ways. So if you have to reconstruct a full archaeological history, it's a much more constraining um, measurement that you've got to reproduce with your, with your models, essentially. I'm sort of, I'm going to take a little bit of an interesting left turn. If, so based on, on, your, on your studies of galactic history uh, and, and, and how they've been put together, if you're putting together a galaxy, what would be your ideal galactic setup? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know if I have a, a good answer to that. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if I have objectives, <laughs> if I'm going to, you know, play God and think about creating my own galaxy. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'd have a clear set of objectives. Um, I think it's kind of neat that, that, you know, we live in one that seems to support life. <laughs> Um, and that's, it's not obvious that all galaxies, you know, are like that. Some of them may have had more violent histories, um, that may be less conducive to the relatively quiet suburbs of the Milky Way that we live in. Um, and so, you know, I think that's an important element that I would be keen to reproduce. <laughs> um, but I think, I think. I think what is interesting is that you can get a, a really big variety of properties from, from relatively um, few initial constraints. Um, if you've got enough time and you've got enough space and um, you, know, you let things develop, then you get this vast array of, of different structures. But we can actually reproduce that with you know, a handful of of numbers and parameters and then just let it evolve. And then suddenly you get all this complexity that just kind of naturally occurs. Um, and that in itself is kind of interesting. What's been the most interesting um, history of a galaxy that you've seen in, in, in your research? Well, to be honest, we've, we've only just started scratching the surface about, about this topic. Um, at least in the level of detail that you know we're, we're we're getting at in this conversation, so you know over over the past few years, my group and I we've developed some tools that let us do what I mentioned earlier. You know, bring together the the, the timing and the chemistry of, of 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 stellar lifetimes with their orbital properties that probably you know record their assembly history. So we've actually done this for only four galaxies so far. That's how. You know, there's quite there's quite a lot still to do, <laughs> um, but of those four, we already got some some surprises, um, and and it seems to be related to where they live. So, you know, the the environment that a galaxy lives in is is one of its key properties. Uh, in a way, we we know that their environment, and by environment, I mean you know how many neighbors do you have? Um, are you you know kind of in a big empty portion of the universe? Are you in a cluster of galaxies and there's, there's lots of other galaxies around you and it's a more of a dynamic environment? And, uh, you know, naively, we, we expect those environmental, you know, different environments will, will, will lead to different assembly histories. And, um, and indeed, that's what we, we've started to see. We have, you know, we have this one object that I mentioned earlier, 3115, which seems to live kind of in isolation. 
and we can see that its star formation has continued and, and sort of slowly ramped down. But you know, for the past 10 billion years, it's, there's not been much happening to that object, it looks like. Whereas the other three objects live in a, in a galaxy cluster, the Fornax galaxy cluster, and um, they lack this kind of uh, long fading of, of star formation. So they seem to have had that, that process shut down in them much sooner. And that means that their average dynamical properties are, you know, a, a bit more different from the Milky Way um, than 3115. And it looks like that's a direct result of, of living in a, in a galaxy cluster, that it would actually change, you know, the, um, the, the orbital makeup of the galaxy that we would see today because certain, certain steps along that path have, have, have not happened in the galaxy cluster. So it's interesting to see those kinds of differences bear out in in their um, in the detailed dynamics in in a way that you could probably anticipate, but we haven't actually measured and shown it before, and that's the interesting part. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.